and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I'm your host, Victoria Sadowski, and this is the first episode, so welcome. Hope it goes well. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about something that I've always wondered about, mainly because it's such a broad and fascinating history, but because it's so broad and long and covers several hundred, if not over a thousand years of history, there may be things that I glaze over or just don't really get into or miss entirely. So if you think there's something that you want me to pay more attention to or cover in a later episode, you can always email sources to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com and I will take a look at those because it never never hurts to have more than one source. Not that I only have one source for this. Don't worry. (laughs) I have multiple sources. The topic we're going to be covering today is the fall of Baal, the ancient Canaanite god. And before I continue any further, I just want to put up a disclaimer. I've looked up so many ways on how to pronounce Canaan, Canaan, I don't know. There's like three different ways to pronounce this word. I might be interchanging them throughout this episode. Uh, Fair warning. And I'm just going to assume because we are living in an era that is pretty much 3,000 years after this takes place, that no matter what way we're pronouncing it, it's probably wrong (laughs) compared to how they pronounced it then. So bear with me and be kind, please. I'm doing my best. So the slow demise of ancient Canaan. This starts around the late Bronze Age. And we're going to start off by talking about Abraham a little bit. And just for context, he was a migrant from uh, the city of Ur in Sumer from the 20th century BCE. This is important to keep in mind because uh, the ancient civilization of Sumer was believed to be the first Semitic peoples. And so a lot of the Semitic kingdoms that come later, like Israel, Judah, Edom, they are believed to be not entirely, but a lot of the people who make up those kingdoms are believed to be descendants of migrants from the fall of Sumer. Bear that in mind. So Abraham was told by God, and again, I'm just giving biblical stuff, but I'm also going to follow up with like historian understanding of these events. It is said by a lot of archaeologists that most of these people in the Old Testament in Exodus are not real or not, you know, there's no evidence suggesting that they were real people. There's just, you know, it's not saying that there's not, there's just no evidence to back this up at the moment. Uh, Later, we'll cover certain things that might suggest that these people, certain people existed throughout the story, but again, might. So keep that in mind. And I'm sort of going to organize this based on like biblical, historical, and just sort of go from there. So we're going to start by talking about the biblical stuff. Um, Abraham was told by God to leave his father's home to inherit the land given originally to Canaan, but God now bestows to Abraham and his kin, essentially the Hebrew people. He travels with family from Haram to Bethel to Egypt and then back to Bethel, settling each time. They're sort of migrating with, you know, dozens of people and all of their animals. So, like, this is, you know, he's doing a lot in his life. That's what I'm trying to say. He does a lot. He travels a lot. He's a worldly guy. And this is around the time of Sodom and Gomorrah rebellion um, of the Elamites. And just something to keep in mind, too, the Elamites and the Akkadians were the Semitic empires that infiltrated ancient Sumer and were believed to help in the downfall of Sumer. There are other factors like flooding and stuff like that, which also gives inspiration uh, to the later stories of Noah's Ark, which is also very interesting. I might do that in a later episode. But Elamites are apprehending 
Hebrew people and Semitic travelers and enslaving them and selling them to places like Egypt and the Assyrians. Abraham's nephew Lot is believed to be one, one of the many people apprehended by the Elamite forces and sold into slavery or imprisoned. It's not really, I couldn't really find out if it was he was sold into slavery or he was just imprisoned for whatever reason. Abraham's son Isaac was born when he was 100 and he was blessed by God, so blessed, so hashtag blessed. That he becomes so rich later in his life that the Philistines would even envy him. Which I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Let's let's continue. And for historical context, uh, Israel around this time during the late Bronze Age, historians say uh, Israel was referred to as an ethnic group like we call, you know, the Jewish or Hebrew people. Not a defined place or kingdom yet, just an ethnic group that was traveling around Mesopotamia. This is also around the time of the decline of the first Babylonian Empire in the 19th century BCE. But don't worry, they'll make a comeback and it'll be fierce. So now we're going to talk about Jacob, Abraham's grandson, the son of Isaac, which all this takes place around 1500 BCE. He migrated to Egypt uh, later in his life to seek out his son, Joseph, who was later named like one of the favorites of the pharaohs and, you know, made a governor. Joseph was believed to be dead. (laughs) Because his brothers are assholes, <laughs> they pretty much just, I forget, they either kicked him out or threatened him and he like left and then they drenched his uh, clothes in like pig's blood or something and were like, hey father, look, your your favorite son is dead. And he was like, god damn it, fuck. He didn't say that. He did not take the Lord's name in vain. But he thought Joseph was dead. And then he learns that Joseph is alive uh, through the same shitty brothers. And so he's like, I have to go see my son before I die. Because at this point, he's like 130-something. These guys live a long time. I don't know what they were eating back then, but, like, give me some of that. So they go find Joseph in uh, Egypt. And when this happens, uh, this isn't in my notes, but I just remember it off the top of my head. Jacob is on his way to meet the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's, like, really excited because he loves Joseph. Joseph's everybody's favorite. Everyone loves Joseph. So the Pharaoh's super excited. Jacob shows up. Jacob's also referred throughout the Old Testament at certain points as Israel. And one of his sons is called Judah. So Israel and Judah are sort of taking on these personifications before they've really been established as kingdoms, which I find interesting, but also very, very confusing. So Israel and or Jacob, who knows? So he meets the Pharaoh the Pharaoh's hyped. He's like, how old are you? <laughs> he actually asks, like, well, dude, how old are you? Because we all know when the Egyptian pharaohs die, they're all pretty freaking young. And then this guy, Jacob, waltzes in. He's 130. He's like, oh, hey, what's going on? I just want to see my son before I die. And even the Pharaoh's like, what the heck? This is awesome. This dude's wild. Although that wouldn't last because <laughs> after Jacob's death, after Jacob slash Israel's death, around 1300 BCE, his descendants, supposedly, of two million, would flee Egypt from persecution and slavery. So this is this is uh, where Moses comes in, and he is adopted by the Pharaoh, becomes a prince, and then realizes, oh my god, the Hebrew people are being tortured, and this is inhumane as hell. And then he parts the seas and frees them, and it's great. Uh, and again, for historical context... The Israelite people were for sure enslaved by Egyptians. There's no doubt about that. 
as well as other empires like the again the Elamites and the Akkadians. But it's unclear if these empires attacked their settlements or if they were merely apprehended once Israelites uh, migrated to places like Egypt or like their sort of, you know, capitals. But both are highly plausible. They were probably invading and apprehending as well as just being like, oh, there's some Israelites at the border. Let's take them now. They did that a lot. Abraham's wife was taken at one point by the Pharaoh because the Pharaoh's like, she's cute. Frick. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's see some of that. And then she was like, um, I'm actually not Abraham's sister, which they said so she could get in. She was like, that's that's my husband. He was like, oh, oh, my God. No, thanks. No, no, you're married. OK, which, you know, good. Once he found out, he was like, OK, bye. Um, and also just to point out the philosophy and the mindset of the cult of Yahwism that the Semitic people were bringing west uh, the Euphrates was seen, the Euphrates River was seen as a boundary between the promised land and the old false gods coming from what was Sumer. So more emphasis on the fact that these people are coming from east of the Euphrates and settling in Mesopotamia. And this is, shows the first signs of resentment towards polytheism, as well as described in uh, Josh 24, 2, 3. Yeah. These cults of Yahwism trickle into Canaan, taking mainly... Edomite culture and essentially following Abraham in Jacob's lead to form a small federation of tribes in the highlands of Canaan. And I don't know when the kingdom of Adam sort of pops up. I didn't really go too deep into that. I would imagine that it came earlier considering that it's this, you know, monotheistic ideas coming through Edom. And that might have been where it started because, again, Sumer was polytheistic. They were Semitic, but they were polytheistic. So it's unclear when this monotheistic cult really began to drive home like this is the only god. Monotheism existed among all cultures. There are cults of Apollo in Macedonia. There are cults for Baal, like strictly for Baal. But they exist within cultures that accept multiple gods, and there are multiple cults within one culture. So this was the first sort of culture that was like, no other gods. Nope, just, just Yahweh. Which pissed a lot of people off, but we'll get to that. Also, this federation of the tribes that was being set up in the highlands of Canaan is... Sorry, I'm cracking my fingers. Um, this is historically considered the period of the judges, where there are because it's a federation of tribes, there's no real king. There are just judges for each tribe. Uh, Samuel being one of the judges of one of the tribes. And this sort of federation of tribes was considered an invasion by Semitic polytheists and people like the Egyptians and Assyrians, as well as the Philistines, who would later become like the Israelites' main antagonist. So they'll come back as well. Now we're going to talk about the rise of the full rise of monotheism at the beginning of the first Iron Age. And we need to discuss the rivalry between these two gods, Baal and Yahweh. So Baal was, again, the ancient Canaanite god. He was sort of the Zeus of the clan. He was the king. He had overcome his father's power with the help of his sisters. And there are the these, there's this folklore called the Cycles of Baal, where it talks about his many conquests and how he overcomes other gods within Canaanite culture sort of around once the last cycle wraps up where Baal actually dies and is resurrected because he goes to war with Mot, the god of the underworld. 
And Baal wants it all. He wants the heavens. He wants the underworld. He wants to be that guy. So he goes to war with Mott. He dies. Anat goes ballistic, his sister and consort, which incest. Yes, there were there was incest, as there are in any ancient polytheistic culture at this point, because why not? I guess. Anyway, with that, I'm gonna hit this bong. <laughs> because there's just so much. There's so much incest. I need it to stop. <laughs> so, Baal is this, you know... He's the main god of Canaan, but since Canaan's sort of riling back a little bit, it's not as prosperous as it was. And because of the war with the Philistines, the Canaanites are being pushed down south to what would later become Judah and Edom. So they're being pushed down south. Also, this is not very, you know, fertile land, so there's a lot of droughts in this area. And so it's a time of drought, famine, and war. It's not good for the ancient Canaans. Uh, Phoenicia's not doing well. The Philistines are conquering. They're doing a great job. And I think it's the Philistines who are also referred to as the sea people. Or maybe it's just anyone who travels the Mediterranean and settles on the coast are considered sea people. It's unclear. So worship of Baal is on the decline, especially because Egypt sort of governs this region their gods interact with the Canaanite gods, and they sort of have comparison gods. So, like, gods are being compared to one another, like, you know, put in the same bracket. So, like, again, Baal and Zeus are later, you know, sort of seen as similar. And this is something to keep in mind because Yahweh and Baal are also very similar. Yahweh has a bit more of a mysterious history it's unclear from what specific or maybe i just didn't do enough research again send me sources maybe i just don't know but it was unclear to me where yahweh sort of came from other than the kingdom of edom he's not really referenced as being part of any pantheon or any clan of gods it's not he doesn't have his own folklore prior to this like this is where he really starts to kick up popularity which is not great for Baal because Yahweh and Baal are both war and storm gods. So this is not great for Baal because Yahweh is coming from the east. He's settling in his northern lands and Baal's like, oh no, he's a storm war god too. And more and more people are worshiping him. I like how I'm talking like I knew these gods and like how they were thinking. But like, you know, I'm improvising. So around this time period of 1500 BCE, larger empires were aiming to govern uh Canaan as one of their provinces. Semitic polytheistic populations in northern territories were low, which made Semitic monotheist tribes able to settle. These intense droughts and famine with the Phoenicians and Canaanite people start to make them doubt Baal. Because again, he is good at war and he is good at storms and brings the rain. And they're losing the wars and they have no rainwater to make drinking water. So they're kind of blaming Baal instead of realizing like they were just pushed out of their lands, you know. And again, Egyptian rule over this area is weak, so the Philistines can easily come in and sort of do as they please, as most conquerors tend to do. But because of this federation of tribes that's now been sort of established, 
and they're having their own sort of spouts and things and there's you know different clans and different tribes warring with one another but this is the beginnings to the Israelites now having a defined location that they all see as the promised land so maybe if they could chill and not war with each other they can unite and do do that stuff and they do they do it they form the kingdom of Israel under King Saul who was named king by one of the judges Samuel and so the tribes unite um, they're warring primarily with the Philistines and along the way Samuel dies and Saul continues to you know be king and at some point I believe I didn't write this down I have no absolute idea why but I believe it's David who starts to challenge uh, Saul because Saul starts to you know do some things that look like polytheism and that's not good so one of the things he does is he calls upon the witch of Endor to help him summon the spirit of Samuel to gain advice which is essentially just necromancy so that's not that's not seen as good in the cults of Yahweh they don't like that so Saul starts to lose his his you know the good graces of the people and David, who is from the tribe of Judah that would later become the kingdom of Judah, don't worry, we'll get there, he essentially somehow, don't know why, again, didn't write this part down, he overpowers Saul in some dispute or Saul, you know, just, he dies, I don't know. David becomes king and this begins the sort of reign of House of David, uh, which is, we, we know David, he's a, he's a good boy, we love David. So again, Uh, David becomes king and then Solomon inherits that and he builds the first temple of Jerusalem out of and I know this from a long time ago but he has it built out of the god cedar from Lebanon so he has cedar imported from what is now Lebanon then at the time Phoenicia to build this temple of Yahweh and uh it doesn't stick around I'm sorry I'm sorry to spoil it but it doesn't stick around and then after Solomon's reign um, again Solomon also sort of has a falling out by doing things like necromancy and also really just liking women a little too much and so he loses a lot of people's respect and he sort of ends up dying I think he loses the kingdom at one point and becomes like a nomad I don't know I, I didn't dive too deep but He dies. His son Rehoboam uh, takes the throne of Israel. And during this time period, this is sort of like the 10th to the 9th uh, century BCE, Assyria, Egypt, and the Neo-Babylonians are fighting over the area, primarily over Jerusalem and northern Judah. So you can imagine this kingdom's rise is very turbulent because they're just being attacked on all sides by a variety of different uh, empires. Also, there are still internal disputes, and one of the major ones is between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, where Jeroboam challenges Rehoboam. Oh my god, these names. I'm going to lose it. And (laughs) they have a dispute, and it winds up with uh, Jeroboam sort of reinstating Uh, Judah's independence and Judah becomes the kingdom of Judah and this is not good for Israel and the two sort of uh, begin this long-term clash around the time 
that this happens, Egypt makes a move on Judah and Rehoboam pretty much gives uh, control of the kingdom to Egypt. I don't believe Jeroboam achieved kinghood or, you know, he just gained independence uh, through a series of means. I don't know. Didn't dive too deep again. But Egypt ends up getting Judah (laughs) for a period of time anyway. Now we're going to move on to the 8th century BCE, where we talk about the tragedy that is Jezebel and Ahab's fall. And I just, I just gotta, I just gotta. Damn, okay. Um, (laughs) This is just tragic. It just sucks. Like, all of it sucks. There's no side that is good and everyone sucks. That's just what we're about to dive into. So get ready. Again, this is all still considered hearsay by many historians. However, a discovery of ancient texts from, I believe, Egypt or Phoenician uh, areas, what is now Lebanon. They consider it hearsay. However, because of these texts that were found, they say the house of David and its descendants possibly did reign uh, because of who is mentioned. Ahab himself is mentioned. Although a lot of people dispute this because they say Ahab as well as, you know, Abraham and Isaac. And those are all just very common names. So it's the text essentially says, I have killed Ahab. I have eliminated his seed. Weird way to phrase that. But a lot of people say, historians say, this could mean anybody. They don't say Ahab is a king of Israel. It's not stated. It's just a guy named Ahab. So they don't know if that really you know, refers to this context. However, some people say if it didn't, why would it be engraved on these, you know, stones? Like that's kind of important information, especially to claim that you killed this person. And Ahab does die, but we're not really going to cover that. Sorry, we're not. So again, it could be true, could not be true. Um, We're just going to go on mainly what the Bible says, as well as a few Phoenician sort of depictions that have been recently discovered. So Jezebel is a Phoenician princess from Sidon, and she is married off by her father to King Ahab of Israel. And this is sort of done for the Phoenicians to sort of hold on to power over the Israelites. So again, no one really wants the Israelites to succeed. Everyone's sort of trying to grab at them. And this is uh, the Phoenician way of doing that, I guess. And so Jezebel is a priestess of Baal and had converted Ahab from Semitic monotheism to Semitic polytheism or Canaanite polytheism. Yahwism at this point had been well established because of the Federation of Tribes. So it was the main religion of this area. And because Jezebel, being a Canaanite princess, was sort of trying to reinstate her religion in the area as it had been hundreds of years prior. Uh, And she does this, according to the Old Testament, very aggressively and is weeding out Yahwism by killing priests and tearing down temples and things of that nature. So she's going at it. She is performing her own genocide while being queen. All right, this is just what was happening at that time. While Jezebel's going on her, you know, whatever rampage, Obadiah, who is a member of Ahab's court, was a 
practitioner of Yahwism and was protecting priests uh, in a cave somewhere while this whole Inquisition was going on. Inquisition? Conquest? Sure. This aggressive move by the queen angered the prophet Elijah, who protested the queen and challenged her to a battle of the gods between Baal and Yahweh. And it's sort of, some sources say they met at the base of Mount Kamal uh, and duped it out by I, one of two ways, either summoning a storm, because again, they're both storm gods. I'm seeing which god can summon a storm. Or there's another rendition that I've seen where they're trying to light a candle, which is so spooky. <laughs> like, why out of all the things do the spookiest thing? Also, for people, like, to not, you know, it's just so interesting to me how the monotheistic cults were like no 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 screw necromancy and all that magic stuff we don't we don't do that here but we will summon our god to light a candle <laughs> we will do it and i just like that i just i just think that's hilarious don't know why so this happens uh they meet with you know elijah having multiple priests of yahweh and Jezebel having numerous priests and priestess of Baal, uh, Anat, and Astarte. And I believe, or maybe it's their mother Astroth. I don't know. I don't even know how to pronounce most of their names, to be perfectly honest. I tried. I tried my best. Jezebel loses. Um, Baal could not perform. <laughs> so Jezebel loses. And Elijah has all of her priests and priestesses killed. I don't know who he showed up with. I guess he had followers at this point who were like pretty hefty dudes because they just slaughtered the bunch and Jezebel had to flee. Who I would assume have had her own escort? I don't know. But she had to leave. She was like, I'll kill you. And he was like, I'll kill you. And they both didn't like each other after that. They didn't before, but they really didn't at this point. And so Jezebel's, you know conquest against Yahwism was either kicked into full gear or it had been the I don't know it's just continuing and the Hebrew people are sort of over time getting more and more annoyed and Yahwism sort of trickling back in being you know the main religion it's kind of hard to get rid of when you're one person but you know she tried uh, over time, Ahab dies. I'm not sure if he's killed or not. So I don't know if that tablet was telling the truth or if it's even relevant to the story. I don't know. I don't know that much. Send me sources. <laughs> but he dies. Jezebel has kids. At some point, they're married off. And uh, she has a princess and some other... I don't know. I don't know. She has kids. Her husband's dead. She's a little bit older now. Yahwism's on the rise. And members of her court are now beginning to abandon the polytheistic ways. So, at some point, members of her guard begin practicing Yahwism. And around that time, it's not Elijah who at some, at some point, I don't know if it was before the battle at the base of the mountain or not, but at some point he leaves Israel, has a conversation with God and comes back at some point, I don't know. But I think at this point he's dead. And his, I mean, he could not be. He could have just be like, fuck Jezebel, I'm doing my own thing. I don't know. But his successor wants her dead really bad. So he somehow has her guards turn on her and there's a coup. And the palace 
is infiltrated and it is said that she is thrown from, you know, the window of her room and she falls to her death and splatters blood all over the horses. That is what they tell me, literally. So yeah, Jezebel dies, although it is, you know, in the Old Testament, it is stated that like Jezebel's not seen in a very good light and a lot of that negativity forms in a misogynistic sort of way so do with that as you will also there is recent discoveries in lebanon of the phoenician perspective of this situation i believe and it's rumored that Jezebel is seen in more of a like uh positive light where she's trying to defend you know the old ways and she's trying to defend women and I don't know I don't know I didn't look too deep again so do with that as you will go down that rabbit hole if you want but I'm just telling you what I know so Yahwism again grows in popularity um after the death of Jezebel and now we're going to talk about the demise of ancient Israel and Judah (laughs) The Assyrian Empire at this point is in full swing and they hit this sort of peak right as Judah and Israel really start to clash. So the Assyrians take the side of Judah and the kingdom of Aram is siding with Israel. At this point, the Canaanite culture is absorbed by many different other polytheistic empires because again, their pantheons and other people's pantheons or clans or whatever they had names for at that point, uh, their gods are all intermingling and have sort of, I guess, having their own lore. An example of this would be when the Baal cycles are absorbed by Assyrian culture. There's an Assyrian god named Hadad, and later he merges with Baal and is referred to as Baal Hadad. And this sort of continuously happens where the stronger empire assimilates the gods of their adversary into their own culture and they sort of morph and change and adapt to different personas and have more folklore about them which is you could go into one god and go on a whole slew of that and an entirely different episode but another day so as the assyrians sort of take over this area baal becomes baal hadad and yahweh just stays yahweh actually not really because in the closeness between the Canaanite religion and Yahwism, there is that sort of mesh of folklore where the god El, Baal's father, merges and conflates with Yahweh. So in the Old Testament, there are times where God is referred to as El instead of Yahweh, but they are essentially the same thing and they combine. So I take back what I said before. These cultures despite one being hyper monotheistic and the other being polytheistic they are also you know having a culture clash and a culture merging at the same time in 723 bce king hoshea is forced to concede to the assyrians after a failed rebellion on the kingdom of israel is officially ended and absorbed by assyria and you know Assyria then turns right around and launches campaigns right into Judah, taking Jerusalem, supposedly, because why the fuck not? They wanted Jerusalem the whole time, as everybody does, so they turn right around and snatch that. For a second, though, because they didn't hold it very long, or they only sacked it, it's unclear. And I want to say that's sort of the peak for Assyria, because they start to weaken over time, because they're covering a 
large area and I guess don't have the manpower or resources to really keep that area to themselves. So the Egyptians pushed back again and took Jerusalem and weakened the Assyrian forces. And then the Neo-Babylonians come right back because, you know, they were lying low for a while, but they're, they're starting to see the games going on. They're like, I want a bit of that. I want some of that. I want in on it. So they stray back and take Jerusalem in 587 BCE. And they held it for several decades, but this was the final sacking. They tore down the city walls and tore down the Temple of Jerusalem, ending the Promised Land and beginning the displacement of Jews. And this is also referred to as the Babylonian exile. A little biblical note here. Uh, Jeremiah, who was an advisor to Hoshea, says one of my sources, but I don't believe it's one of my more credible ones. So again, fact check me, please. Jeremiah is said to have told the Jewish people to essentially make themselves useful to the Babylonians and be a polite guest because the promised land was no longer, you know, theirs. This would later be an essential principle for the Jewish people to adapt and assimilate when living all over the world for the next 2,500 years. And a lot of people, you know, around World War II, there were there was a huge Jewish population in Poland, uh, France. There was a little bit of one in the UK, but not as prominent as the ones in like Poland, as well as, you know, the Middle East, which is, you know, ancient Mesopotamia. There's still Jewish populations there. There are Jewish populations in the eastern coast of Africa, as well as northern Africa. They go everywhere because they are pushed out of this area throughout such a long period of time. This migration sort of goes outward. And so if you're like, why is there, there's Jewish people everywhere. This is kind of why their promised land was taken from them and they had to just make do. And Jeremiah's words allegedly are the basis for this practice of assimilation because they no longer have their promised land. After the Babylonians took it, the Persians took it in 530 BCE. And the Persian king Cyrus the Great then gave Jews permission to return to Jerusalem. So then there's another wave coming back in to Israel. And, uh, yeah. That doesn't last very long. Because... That's when Alexander the Great takes the region around uh, 370 to 330 BCE. Um, and a former general of Alexander named, I'm going to butcher this. I'm sorry, guys. It's going to happen. Seleucus, Seleucus, Nicator creates the Seleucid Empire in what was ancient Israel. So there is now a super-duper uh, Western polytheistic sort of culture now integrating into this area. So monotheism's out again. <laughs> They're pushed out. And the region sort of takes on a new Western sort of polytheism. So like all of these, you know, cults of Zeus, Apollo, Athena, Hera, they're now taking center stage. And they're already competing with the gods that have been there for a thousand years. So there's just no room really for Yahwism to really participate at this point because they were just beginning a rise during a very chaotic period and met a very, you know, it's, it's a few hundred years, yeah. But 
in terms of these empires and how long they went, as well as the ones that continued afterwards, it was an early demise. They didn't last very long. The culture itself had an amazing impact on the world for years to come. However, at this period of time, these kingdoms just, you know, fell very quickly. And that sort of is the story of the fall of Baal. And it's very interesting because you have these, you have an enormous amount of polytheistic cultures during this era. And each one that loses a war is assimilated. Their gods are also assimilated with the winner's gods. And this keeps happening, keeps happening. It's almost, you know, the culture's way of trying to survive but it's also burying their culture at the same time. While somehow the Hebrew people just maintain this autonomy with their one God. And despite, you know, being enslaved, despite being killed off, despite being pretty much like dethroned, they managed to survive throughout thousands of years. And I personally am not monotheistic. Um, I lean towards polytheism. But if you think about where it was, how it started, how it ended then, and how it's gotten to where we are now. It's amazing they fucking survived. That <laughs> this culture is still prevalent in daily life today. It's just astounding to me and I find it very interesting. But it also illuminates another thing that lasts just as long, uh, anti-Semitism, where, you know, the most powerful empires at that time they didn't like it they thought them as troublesome nomads and scum of the earth probably some of them a lot of the empires enslaved them and they were the focus of that enslavement for certain periods throughout that time and it's something you know a lot of people that I've met in life have this mentality of like time heals all wounds and I just I can't get down with that especially when you learn about these things and then come to where we are now and it's like, well, that was, what, two to three thousand years ago? And then not even a hundred years ago, we had the Holocaust where the Jews were persecuted again. And it's just like, it doesn't end. Prejudice, from what I understand, just doesn't die unless the individual kills it within themselves. And like, yeah, I'm high, okay? I, I'm high now, so I'm trying to get all... Come on, man. Like, let's all get along, dude. Like, why do we... I know. I know. I'm sounding like that bitch. But, like, I don't know. It, it It is a little true of prejudice being this mundane thing that we continuously... And I'm guilty of it 100%. Where we just have certain, like, mm, I don't like that about whatever. Uh, and I think it's something that I try to practice every day. Don't always succeed. But to remind myself, like, is that really necessary? Is that really doing any good? Because granted, if you look at this history, it doesn't. Prejudice doesn't do anyone any good. It just persists problems longer than anyone could ever imagine. And in the case of, you know, specifically Elijah and Jezebel, both of their prejudices were not really... I mean, you could say Elijah's was justified in the sense that she was a tyrannical queen and you could justify for Jezebel that her prejudice were justified because Elijah was, you know, parading around his resentment as misogyny, supposedly, allegedly, again, based on the sources. But then, you know, you're left with a situation where, from my perspective, I'm like, oh, well, I don't like anyone here. I don't want to be part of this. I don't, it's, 
you know, where you walk into a room at a party and there's two people fighting and one person does something and you're like, whoa, dude, whoa, like, come on, like, he, like, is this really, and then the other person tops that and you're like, all right, you both suck. I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. So I understand the migrants who are, you know, fleeing this area despite it being like a very, you know, very populated migrated area there are definitely people probably at that time who are like i'm out bye <laughs> like nope i'm not dealing with this and essentially that's kind of what the earliest semitic people were doing when the akkadians and the elamites were attacking uh sumer and they were like all right we're going west of the euphrates and this place is bunk we're done with it and we're gonna say this is where the false gods are so goodbye and I also want to point out about the, like, Jezebel thing. A lot of that lore, supposedly according to archaeologists, started circulating around the early Iron Age, despite it being about the the downfall or the late Bronze Age. Not the collapse, It you know, before that, the later Bronze Age, before it collapsed. And that's supposedly where, like, the Abrahamic stuff was taking place. And archaeologists suggest that this was just lore that was being circulated around the time of the early Iron Age, which is, you know, the time of uh, Jezebel and Elijah, where this folklore was coming into place with this uh, kingdom that had now established, you know, a few hundred years of reign. And if that's the case, and that's, like, where this stuff comes from, then this time period was also practicing a great deal of misogyny. And if you read the Old Testament, and I'm sorry for people of the Jewish faith, but, like, it doesn't frame women in the greatest light all the time. That being said, there are definitely, like, women in exodus in the old testament that are doing some wild cool stuff you know the pharaoh's wife or not pharaoh's wife pharaoh's daughter who uh finds baby moses going down the river and is like "Uh uh-uh i don't know i don't think so and then recognizes him as a uh baby of the hebrews and decides like he's gonna die if i don't take him so she takes him and you know that gives birth to Moses' lore and he saves the Jewish people. So there are prominent women throughout uh, this folklore, but primarily a lot of it has to do with aiding the monotheistic Semites or converting to monotheism themselves. And women who practice polytheism are looked down upon and any autonomy that they have is seen as like, "Mm, no. Uh, we don't like that. So that's that's something to also look at and be like, hmm, if it did, again, if it did uh, start circulating through the early Iron Age during, you know, the peak, I want to say, of Israel, then that's not good. <laughs> that's not great either. We don't like that. And, you know, that's stuff that's playing out today. There's issues in Israel now where uh, there are there's like a deviation between the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox and sort of Jewish people who are not so ultra-Orthodox. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to call them, um, and I'm not going to risk it. So there's an issue with the women who are Jewish who are looking at the ultra-Orthodox and saying, like, you're you're kind of making me feel like I can't worship the way I want because I'm a woman. And the ultra-Orthodox are like, well, yeah, you're a woman. And that's, you know, there's sort of a clash going on in Israel there. To be clear, I am very much paraphrasing the issue. This is a very complex thing that happens in the United States, but is also mainly taking place in Israel. Um, There's a Netflix show. I think it's just called Unorthodox. I think that's what it's called. 
about a woman who flees her Jewish community in Brooklyn and flees to like Germany to get away from it. And it's wild to see how women are viewed and treated within this culture. And again, this is one that's based in the United States. But in a lot of there, this always goes into a weird, rough topic of, you know, religious rights. And I'm someone who's like, you know, if women like that, cool. Let them do what they want. Let let these people just do what they want. But you know, there's a lot of women who are born into it who are not down with it and can't really figure out how to vocalize that. And then if they do figure out how to vocalize that, it is suppressed heavily. And as a woman, I just got to point out that that's kind of weird. I don't like it. But again, you know, there's other aspects to uh, the Hebrew world that are just amazing and very interesting and stuff I want to read about. So this this time period, I feel like, and why I wanted to cover it, it just shows the complexity of the issues going on during this time. And again, how they play out now culturally, because they still are. And something to bring up that I kind of didn't really address, but I kind of want to address now. The collapse of the Bronze Age and the transition into the early Iron Age brought upon a time of great uh, turbulence and change. So you have bronze industries that have been relied on for hundreds of years are now collapsing completely and are pushed aside as all these rising empires and established empires are scrambling to iron to make weapons that completely changed the war game. So you have this new tougher metal to make tougher shields, tougher spears, tougher swords, and really kind of breaks down a lot of empires that were weak and the rising empires it challenges them to adapt quickly to this sudden import-export trade of this new material that's going to help them. So not only are all these empires clashing and it's a very central area, you also have the dramatic change from the Bronze to the Iron Age. And that just... I can't imagine living there <laughs> during this time. I really can't. Like, how did someone live their life? I can't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I do want to point out, though, Solomon didn't have, like, a hundred wives. The population could not sustain that number. So, no, he probably had a few dozen, which, like, already, woof. But, no, he didn't have, like, hundreds of wives. I don't know where this rumor came from. And also, again, when I talk about the alleged existence of like certain kings or certain people within the old testament archaeologists now suggest that like the again the house of david is likely mainly due to solomon and evidence uh pointing at solomon as well as there was a uh, i watched a documentary and i can't remember the name but it talks about a smelting site uh in between israel and Lebanon or what is now Lebanon and it's just a smelting site where archaeologists discovered like this is where not just like jewelry and stuff was being made but currency and it's believed that this was the smelting site that was used during the reign of King Solomon again I think this is alleged I don't know what other proof has been discovered since I even watched that it was a while ago it wasn't part of my research this time around I guess but Definitely interesting, but I think the takeaway here is just 
I, I feel like we need to consider more of how chaotic and turbulent this history was. And again, it's covering hundreds of years and far, far away in many different points of the world, thousands of years later, these issues still continue. And I just find that wild. <laughs> again, no one person can fit hundreds and hundreds of years of history into their brain. I did try. I, I'm telling you now, I did try. It's just not possible. So again, if you've got sources, send them. Because I'm still trying. <laughs> and while we're at it, I'm going to tell you some of my sources. So one being Mark S. Smith's The Birth of Monotheism Lecture for the Tangier Global Forum. The second being The Discovery of God, Abraham and the Birth of Monotheism by David Klinghoffer. And the third being Biblical Peoples and Ethnicity, an Archaeological Study of Egyptians, Canaanites, Philistines, and Early Israel by Anne E. Killebrew. So yeah, those were my main those were my main dudes getting through this. So especially uh Anne E. Killebrew's book. That one was very interesting. And so yeah, that's the first episode. Thanks. If you're still here, <laughs> thanks. Um and if you're interested in more stuff, um, I'm hoping to do these uh, every first and third Monday of every month. And you can find me on Instagram at Smoke and Shadow Podcast. There you can find a link to my Patreon. And if you choose to donate, thank you. Um, it'll help me to keep growing, possibly create new content for you in the future, and to just give me more time to do the research and possible help with research. So thank you very, very much for listening, and I will see you guys next time.